After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, yeah, sure, what's the catch? Well, uh, there isn't one. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plan's jaw-dropping monthly bills and unexpected overages. All plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. The team here at Literally has tried Mint Mobile out, and this is the review. For a fraction of the cost, Mint Mobile proved to have excellent coverage with no drop calls or unsent texts. Plus, they make it super easy for me to activate my device just by following a few simple steps online. And bam, done. It was great. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan, for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash literally. That's mintmobile.com slash literally. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash literally. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What made you move out of L.A.? I was living in East L.A., and a buddy of mine that I went to Pasadena City College with called me and said, you got to come up to Santa Barbara. I fucking love this. i got to stay here. everybody. Welcome to Literally eh, with me, Rob Lowe. I love doing this podcast, as you guys hopefully know. And every once in a while, uh, the best thing about it is that I get to fanboy out and, you know, just be like, what? Wait, what? And today's one of those days because I'm talking to Kenny Loggins. Come on. I mean, you know, I'm, 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 I'm all about my yacht rock. Maybe you don't know it. And I'm telling you the first time. I am, but he's so much more than Yacht Rock, and he's the soundtrack to my life, and probably yours, too. It's a tremendous career that has spanned so many moments, and I cannot wait to finally ask him if Michael Jackson ripped off his vocal style in uh, This Is It, because I think he did. I'm going to ask him. We'll see what he says. Anyway, so here we go. Uh, ladies and germs, Kenny Loggins! Now, were you, do you remember when Joe Walsh lived up here? Yeah. I can't believe Joe Walsh lived I, I don't. I can't. A little, little too laid back for Joe? Yeah, well, particularly that time in his life, if you know what I'm saying. And yeah, I know yeah. you do. I played golf with Joe back then. Really? And we played at the Montecito Country Club, which was totally ironic that Joe was a member of, of the a country, country club. club. Yeah, that's definitely against the image. Yeah. And uh, 
And he never used a driver. He what? he always used an iron because he hated his drivers. Jeez, that's a, that's a hard. That's if you a hard can thing. hit a long straight iron, you're probably in better shape than a, a crappy wood. Wow. For the, for those who actually play golf, this was the, uh, the, that was our version of bushwood. Uh, oh my God! No, well, yeah, right. Well, yes, bushwood. When do you remember the first time you saw a Caddyshack? I was uh, <clears throat> driving up to Santa Barbara. I had worked with John Peters when he was with Barbara Streisand. And um, when I met Barbara and John and I played some stuff that I was working on, ideas for Celebrate Me Home, um, she loved a bunch of melodies. So we started working on melodies for Star Is Born. And then when they broke up, John went solo and his first project was to make Caddyshack. And uh, so he called me and said, I need your help. Come on in and check this out. It was great. I mean, he, did, he didn't need any help. He had the, everything just fell into place for him on that. I made a list of my all-time favorite movies on my phone. I was just bored. I'm like, I'm going to see how far I can go with this list, how long I can get it. And Caddyshack, just for fun, it was really a good exercise, actually, if nothing else in film. And um, Caddyshack came up as the, the first comedy. Oh, really? For, yeah. Because the way I did it was like movies that when they're on, you have to watch them. Uh-huh. That was like... Like, it's not about reviews or stature or just plain old. If you see it, you're watching it. Yeah. And Caddyshack, and then the quotability of it, forget yeah, it. Yeah, every, every, every line in Caddyshack. You can't help but wonder how much of that was improvised and how much of that was really written or fleshed out. There's a book that came out two years ago about the making of Caddyshack, which is really, it talks a lot about that. But I think your song is a huge part of it. I really, I really do, because it's at the beginning and the end. Yeah. Because the gopher has to dance to it whenever possible. Whenever possible. Yeah, right. I mean, and I, and I love that the gopher is just a bad puppet. You know. I love that. When I first saw the movie, it was, it was not in the movie. It was, John said to me, oh, we're going to have a, a hand puppet in this part. And I thought, that's a stupid idea. <laughs> <laughs> That'll never work. Well, I think it works because of the song. Because the, when the golf ball comes flying in. Yeah. And, and the gopher ducks and then the song hits. I mean, come on. It's, I mean, dude, it's movie magic. Could look like Howdy Doody there for a minute. I mean, there's in, in the canon of your movie smash songs, I mean, everybody has their favorite. You're, I've heard yours is Footloose. Mine's for sure I'm All Right. Yeah, I love I'm All Right, too. I, I recorded the demo of I'm All Right here in Santa Barbara, and the drummer I used was not an uh, extremely adept drummer. So any kind of complication idea that I had, he couldn't do. So finally, I just boiled it down to foot snare, foot snare, foot snare. <laughs> You're kidding. And it became the essential groove of, of I'm all right. It's, it's crazy how well that works. That's under the category of happy accidents. And as you know, you've probably had your share. It's, it's really super true. It's like what could flummox a lesser artist, whether it's an actor, writer, producer, singer where the, all of a sudden something doesn't work out and you could be really pissed or ruin it actually ends up making it better. Yeah. Sometimes that really does happen. Or just ending up showing up for something that you wouldn't have normally had to show up for. Mm -hmm. You know, yes. so, so that's what happened with Danger Zone. Um, I was uh, in the studio when, when I wrote for Top Gun, it was a cattle call and I was in a, a private theater watching a preview of the, you know, what, whatever edit they had with about six or seven other big pop acts. Who else was there? 
there was a, an R&B act that came in right behind us, about four guys. There were a couple of guys already in the theater. Mickey Thomas and the Starship was part of it. Mm -hmm. I know that uh, REO was part of it. Ototo was part of it. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm sitting there and I'm seeing all this competition around me. And, and, and then about midway through the movie comes the volleyball scene. Mm -hmm. And I was writing at the time with Peter Wolf, a, the Austrian producer. I nudged Peter and I said, nobody's going to write for this. Let's, let's write for this scene. So that, you know, because I knew from my experience that just being a part of the soundtrack album was going to be pivotal. And it kind of didn't matter what scene you write for as long as you get in it. Wow. So we, we, I think we were the only ones who submitted a song for that scene. So I was in the studio working on playing with the boys, which is the song we wrote. And uh, I got a call from Giorgio Moroder's office. Giorgio was doing the bulk of the music for the movie. And he had a song and he didn't have a singer because the, the band that was supposed to do it dropped out. The lawyers refused to agree about something. So they dropped out of the deal. And he said, I have to dub this song in tomorrow and I don't have a singer for it. So can you come in and sing it? And I didn't even listen to it. I just said, is it up tempo? Because I needed a rock and roll one for the, for the show. And he said, oh yeah, it's a rocker. So I, I went, good, I'm in. We went over lyrics and chords. I added some things, changed some words. We added a bridge. And then uh, went in the next day and sang it. And you know, everybody was writing for that scene. Just blind luck. Is that the biggest of all of them? I mean, they're all huge. Is that, is that the biggest? Of the songs, you yeah. mean? Yeah. Actually, no, that's, I, I found out just the other day by doing an interview that uh, Danger Zone peaked at number two behind um, Peter Gabriel. If you're going to be behind somebody, might as well be Peter, Peter Gabriel. Right. I think it was Sledgehammer. And, uh, but it peaked at two. Footloose was at number one for a while. Have you seen, are you involved at all in the new Top Gun? Yes. Oh, have you seen it? I haven't seen it yet. That Well, I've saw, you know, things, you know, moviola versions yeah. here and there. Just They showed me scenes that they thought the song might go in. Are they going to put Danger Zone in it? Yeah. Oh, yes! Yeah! When I, when I, uh, I finally met Tom Cruise on Fallon about slightly before 2020 no started. No way! You never met never him? Never met oh, him. No way! Yeah. And so, you know, I had, I just stopped him before we went on and I said, so yes or no? <laughs> is Danger Zone in the in the new movie? Sick. We can't do we can't do Top Gun without Danger Zone. Yeah, that's Tom. That's so cool. I can't. I I'm very few movies these days get me like excited to go to, but I'm I'm I cannot wait. Yeah, for Top Gun too. They, they've got a great word of mouth. They let the press see it recently. Ooh. For the last year, I was not allowed to tell anyone that Danger Zone was in the movie because he. Loved it so much, he wanted it to be the surprise element. Exactly, yes. And uh, so that when it came on, people would go, go crazy. Oh yeah, they go crazy. And then finally, I found out that they, they had to let the cat out of the bag. They did a private showing for maybe a dozen. And all the reviews were incredible. So I'm excited. Yeah, I hear it's, I, I've talked to people who've seen it and just said it's the aerial footage is beyond belief in it. Insane, the stuff that they've invented for it. Um, do you... Want to know my Footloose story? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's your show, man. Come on. <laughs> um, so Dean Pitchford, uh, who wrote the script and a lot of the songs, and the late, great Craig Zayden. And it was like their first sort of big movie. Yeah. And I read the script and I, I loved it. I knew, I, I loved it. I know it sounds insane, but I loved it and and... The music was a huge part of the script. I don't remember if they had seed 
well, I don't think there were even CDs in those days, but somehow a lot of the songs were already done and you could kind of listen. Yeah, Dean and I wrote a couple of the songs to the to the actual paper screenplay. There you go. You know, we, there was nothing to see but, you know, when we started on it. He wanted me to write with him so that would cement him in not only as the screenwriter, but also as a songwriter. Okay, that makes per- so I'm right yeah. in this memory because I remember the music was in the script. Obviously, it's about dancing. So they had, talk about cattle calls. They, they had a cattle call of all of the sort of, you know, appropriate fledgling movie stars of, of that age group. And um, You do movies? Not anymore. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so how old were you? How old were you when they when you went in to see that? Uh, I would have been twenty. Wow, I would have been twenty. Right at the beginning, perfect time for yeah, right. Rob Lowe to be. Oh no, I was like it was like teed up. Yeah, and they loved me, Craig. Craig, it was Craig's idea to and 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 they we met at um, I forget where we met, but they they were the ones who told me about it. I didn't even know about him. Agent didn't tell me about it. And so I thought, well, this is going to happen. So I started taking dance lessons at Joe Tremaine's dance studio. And in, uh, I hear you do a hell of a foxtrot. Uh, well, listen. Wouldn't have come in handy. It was, with no, it was not good. Um, but I worked really, really hard for, for weeks for the big dance audition, which was at Paramount Studios. And they had a big cattle call dance audition. All the Paramount brass were there. And Herb Ross, who I think believe directed the movie. And um, every, this is it. This is happening. This is what we're doing. And it was, get this, I'll never forget. It was to a Sticks song. of all. Why it wasn't really? to... Dancing to a Sticks song. Yeah, you, and we already had Footloose in the can. Oh, it was definitely not to Footloose. Yeah. For sure it wasn't, which is so bizarre. And it ended with a big leap to your knees, stage slide right. on your knees. That's what Well, everyone can do that. Not me. <laughs> they didn't teach you that at the Tremaine dance? Studio. No. Well, I blew out my ACL. Doing, on, doing on, the, the on, slide? On the slide. I left the soundstage on a stretcher. Oh, my God. And as I'm being wheeled out, uh, Craig Zayden and Neil Marin and everybody are like standing over my stretcher and like, look, Rob, don't worry. I mean, we're really we're just going to we're going to hire a dancer. We we need to hire. We're going to hire a dancer. We're not going to hire an actor. And two weeks later, they hired Kevin Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, Hollywood. Anything they tell you is true. Of course. Yeah. Why would it be anyway? That's the ethic of Hollywood. OK, so I have a theory that on the song this is it i've always wanted to ask you this particularly the opening the opening verses that you're singing 100 percent michael jackson ripped that style off really 100 percent like I've never, I've never even noticed that i've never thought about that and i and I, I don't know what song it would be but for many of them like when he sings in that kind of breathy sort of quasi falsetto Thing. There's just no doubt in my mind that he didn't just steal it. I saw um, Gerald Hall and John Oates recently told a story that Michael said that he, Michael said, I stole, uh, he said, I hope you guys are okay that I stole your kisses on my lips. And they're like, what? I didn't, what? When did you steal it? And there was some song that they, they never did the math either. So I bet you go back and listen to some of Michael's stuff. Cause I know you worked with him. Yeah. Oh, well you, Michael called you for we are the world. Right, right, right. That is my favorite. That video of We Are the World is, I mean, obviously everybody saw it when it came out. But in the in the light of history and yes. the legacies yes. that were in that room, and, watching Steve Perry coach Cindy Lauper to sing her line and, and you'd watch him behind her sitting on the 
And it's like got to be one in the morning or something, two maybe. And we're all exhausted. And he's sitting there just so frustrated because it's a line he could have hit his first try. And well, anything is his first try. Right. But, you know, and she's struggling with, with her line and he's like got his head in his hands and he's kind of hunched over like, oh my God, we're going to be here all night. It's funny. There are some very funny moments. Michael came to me. Prince was supposed to do that gig. And Prince, of course, snubbed his nose and didn't show up. Yes. Which is so very Prince. So there's the space. There's that sort of semicircle of soloists at yes. the end. And there's an open space. And Michael doesn't know what to do. And he comes to me and says, so uh, who, should, who should stand in that place? And I said, Huey Lewis. And he said, okay. So he went and told... Uh, Quincy, and they asked Huey if he would do it, and of course he jumped at the chance. Wow. But, uh, you know, looking back now in, the mo in a moment of legacy, what was, for me, I, was, I had just become a fan of Huey Lewis in the news, and I loved his voice, and I thought, this, this is, this is going to be an important voice for rock and roll. I would love to know the politics of it, because any time, like, who gets what, who sings where, who gets, quote-unquote, more to do, you know, who's, you know, someone's going to be selling more records at that exact moment than someone else. And so all of that has to go into the equation of, of making. Well, I think it was song. entirely Michael and Quincy. Right. And I think they just sat down and talked it over. They may have had, you know, one or two friends in on it, but it really looked like Michael was in charge. And then Quincy was sort of the strong man in the background. Yeah. Like whatever Quincy said, everyone did. That was just the way it was. One of the things that kind of makes me laugh and it's maybe just because I'm, I'm such a misanthrope is is uh kim carnes gets two words she literally says and we <laughs> oh, no and then everyone goes come together as one but it but it makes me laugh so hard yeah. because it's she's in a soul a, a, a solo, line solo and people moment. are throwing down yeah and then it gets to her and she goes and we that's it <laughs> yeah, she'll, point, she'll point at that to her grandkids that, uh, that right there, that's me. That and we is me. That's me. Um, that was at the top of Bruce. That's when Bruce was the biggest star in the history of music at that very moment. Yeah, that he pulled up in some old clunker rental or something. That's right. That's the legend. He pulls up late in some piece of shit renter wreck, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and I wonder if he did that on purpose. For I mean, sure. It wasn't a car he happened to have handy. One of the things that people forget about ev about everybody is that we're all showmen. And if we weren't showmen, we wouldn't have lasted as long as we, we certainly wouldn't have signed up for the for the for gig, the gig in the first place. Yeah, right. And, and 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 Bruce is one of the ultimate show. And that's part of the show. Yeah. Part of the show is the man of the people. Every man. Some did it better than others. Yes. Well, you know, no two travelers are exactly alike, and that means no two trips should be either. Texas, vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activity allow for such an infinite number of different travel experiences. I mean, I love Texas. I go like this. The people of Dallas, the culture of Austin, and I love any time I get there. If you're a beach person, well, you can go have fun in the sun with Texas 350 miles of coastline. If you're a rugged vacation type, there's campgrounds, hiking trails, state parks, golf is nuts there, foodies, you got your Texas barbecue and live music in Austin. 
And of course, if you're into the cowboy scene, you can certainly find it there. And now, Travel Texas offers a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom trip matched to their own unique interests. So visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters, yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. Hey, everybody. Join Macy's and Girls, Inc. to empower a new generation of leaders now during Women's History Month throughout March. You can help fund STEM and college and career readiness programs for girls when you donate online to Girls, Inc., or round up your purchase. Plus, shop women-owned and founded brands like Kaylee Cosmetics, New Face, and Better Not Younger. Learn more and celebrate the creative power of women now and all year round at Macy's.com purpose. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. So Steve Perry, you brought him up. Huge fan. He almost makes me like the the uh, uh, San Francisco Giants. That's how much I like. <laughs> yeah, that's how much I like him. Yeah, just to hear that song, just to hear that song, and to go to the stadium when they play it, and he stands up and lip syncs to it. You know that, right? Oh, I've, I've seen photographs, but I never knew that he actually did the whole song. He, he does it. It's amazing because he's a huge baseball fan. He's there all the time. Yeah, and I went to a World Series game and and. That song comes up and you're like, oh, this is pretty cool. And then you and then you see everybody's looking in one direction. And then there he is like leading like Harry Carey at the Chicago Cubs leading. Take me out to the ball game. The Giants have Steve Perry doing um, the mascot. Yeah. And it's what a voice. Yeah. I, I recorded with Steve years ago. We did a duet that we wrote together called Don't Fight It. Great song. And I went, into the, went up to San Francisco to record the vocal with Steve. So we're recording both of us live simultaneously as opposed to normally you know he'll do his and then i'll do mine or whatever mm -hmm. we were both and then between takes he would imitate other people and the guy was amazing he went into of course of course he's going to do a perfect sam cook we hear that in every one of his records yeah. but then he goes into rod stewart and he does a perfect rod stewart and god knows how many other voices he could do but he certainly found his own i mean it's not like a only a chameleon who can only be a chameleon he he was he, he was already imitating the, the classic rockers of our era and at the same time becoming one. You know, looking back in hindsight, I think that's that's amazing. My son, Cody, he went on the road with me as a as a crew guy. And about two or three shows in after watching me in the audience, he goes, Dad, you're a rock star. He had no idea. He was like 17 years old. And had no idea because then you know how it is in your home life, yes. in your real life. You're not a rock star. You're not nothing but dad. You're the guy who takes out the trash. <laughs> Usually. Yes. Yeah. For sure. Oh, yeah. And, and that's so great. And then, uh, and then a couple years later, he said, dad, you recorded with Steve Perry? 
<laughs> like, uh, well, yeah, son. Uh, As a matter of fact, we hung out together. As a matter of fact, I did. You had great collaborations, though. You had great collaborations. Michael McDonald is my all-time favorite. I was just talking to somebody the other day. Have you ever seen the hilarious, uh, it's not Saturday Night Live, it's um, SCTV sketch that's based around the r- recording of, this is so obscure, but it's so, do, do you know? Is it the Christopher Cross Yes, thing? it's amazing. Yeah, well, he runs from because he was singing on everybody's record. Yeah, and I imagine that that the record co- Warner's, I think it was, yeah. would probably have freaked out, saying, "You're diluting what do you call it the the brand the, the brand the, you're yeah. diluting the brand by singing on everybody else's records." But uh, I was really grateful that he sang on mine. I think what a fool believes, which you wrote with him, it might well it is for sure in my top five songs of all time. Man, the night we wrote that, we were up all night. Um, when I, when I first heard his voice was on the Doobie Brothers living on a fault line. As soon as I heard it, I went, this is going to be one of the great voices. And I was really fascinated by his style of writing and I wanted to write with him. And I heard, got a message that Michael was looking for me because he was looking for collaborators too. And I'm unpacking the guitar uh, out of the trunk of the car and the door to his house is open and I'm hearing him singing things through the door. And I hear him going, bum. Bum, 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 bum. Truth Rogers, oh, say, which ended up being the actual lyric. <laughs> and and uh, I'm hearing this melody come out, and then. And he stops, and my imagination keeps going, and I'm imagining. And so I knock on the door, and we say, hey, man, how you doing? Shake hands. You know that thing you were just playing? I think I know how the next part goes. And you said, just so, like that. So he immediately sat down at the piano and I, I sang the thing I was hearing and he worked out the chords and it was like, so we were writing together before we actually met. Well, it's a great melody, but also it's a, just a great concept, the concept of oh, the yeah. song itself. And he had that already in his, in his hands. Really? That he had to explain it to me about 16 times. <laughs> it isn't. It's well, not. People don't realize that that first line of the chorus is like three sentences long. Yes. What a fool believes he sees is the actual line. Mm-hmm. What a, not just what a fool believes. What mm-hmm. a fool believes he sees. No wise man has the power to reason away. And what seems to be is always better than nothing. It's amazing. What a great fucking line. I mean, it's amazing. I know. So we finished. And about, tr- by the way, and tr- so true. Exactly. Universal truth. Yeah. And it uses his favorite word, fool. Which if you listen to his early work, there's the word fool in every song. Really? Yeah, because he loved the the shape of it. He fool. loved this. That's his thing. And it, it, it was brilliant. And I, I, we finished at three in the morning or so, and I went home and listened to it the rest of the night at my own house. I was just laughing, going, God, this is a big fish. When music survives like that and more than survives, it like is, becomes an iconic thing. It always has a place in your life. And for, for me, that song, I'll always be, and I don't mean to, to age you, but I will always be. You can do that effortlessly. Okay, here we go. I will be 15 years old and it's my very first network television show it filmed in front of a live audience. And as the audience is filling in, I know the audience is coming because they put in the walk-in music and the first song is What a Fool Believes. And I'm like, Man, my career is maybe happening. <laughs> At 15. At 15. God. So we, you know, we, we, we've kind of had, I, I mean, well, listen, it's like, the, it's like the bad cliche and it's uh, the soundtrack of your life, which is the point of your tour. It's the songs of movies. 
Yeah. Which so is I what finally you're doing. now. Yeah, I finally decided to put them all together and put them in the show. And it's an interesting show for me in that way because it's not as emotionally centered as it is movie centered. Mm -hmm. And um, what it ends up being, though, is a pretty rock show. And I haven't really done a straight ahead rock and roll show in a long time because I've got a lot of acoustic guitar material from right. the early days and and ballads and things like that. But I lean very heavily on there's only one movie that I wrote for, which was the Tigger movie that I wrote with the Sherman Brothers. The Sherman Brothers go way back in Disney legacy. And they wrote Winnie the Pooh, Winnie the Pooh, <laughs> Fuzzy Little Cameo. And they even wrote earlier stuff, too. But simultaneously, or almost simultaneously with that, I wrote my Winnie the Pooh song. You wrote it in high school? I wrote it as a senior in high school. Yeah. We were, I was That's supposed insane. to be studying for finals, and instead I wrote the song about leaving my childhood behind. Stuff that happened. I wrote Danny's song in high school, too, from my brother, Danny. It's, it's it, from a very innocent place. You know, you're just kind of sitting on my bed, playing chords and, and hypnotizing myself. That's the... Not really, really, but I mean, in that way where you get so deep into a melody and so deep into a vibe that that's all there is. And in that moment, you can be there for six hours and not know it. But um, a woman working for Disney decided to put me and the Sherman brothers together because those two circles had never been connected. Mm. And her name was Bambi. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's, you can't how, make it up. How Disney, how Disney can it get? Yeah, you can't make that up. The Lullaby album. Again, oh my God, I put my second son to bed to that album every night. Every night. Yeah, it, it works. Oh, it's yeah. so good. Thank you. And, and you know, the parents usually go to sleep before the child. Yeah, it's and I, I listened to it last night. Yeah. And, and, and it put me, you know. Right back there. With, right back there. Which and, one of your kids? Uh, John Owen, my youngest. Uh-huh. My 23-year-old uses it if she gets an anxiety attack when she's off at school. She would put the record on to help her go to sleep. There are a lot of great songs on it. The reworking of Pooh Corners is killer. It's, I mean, if you're a, if you're a dad, if you're if you if you're listening out there and you're a dad, we've all heard Pooh Corner, great song in and of itself. But the reworking on the on the what's the title of the, of the album? Return to Pooh Corner. Return to Pooh. There you go. Um, listen to that one. It's it's killer um the other thing though why is the song rainbow connection so powerful what is it about that song it's a great song that's a paul williams song yeah i know i heard i first heard that song where i really heard it really got it was listening to the like first or second grade class at montecito union sing that song oh my god and i went oh that's that's a perfect song you know why it's just lyrically brilliant but two things I had to do to change the song. It was originally recorded by Kermit. Kermit the Frog, Frog of course. Jim Henson. And Noted vocalist. <laughs> right. It was amazing. So I changed that. I changed it to a more straight melody over the same chords. And then um, the bridge, which I don't remember because I didn't record it. I didn't record the whole lyrical bridge on it because I didn't feel the song needed it. So I took some liberties. There's with a bridge song. in Rainbow Connection yeah. in the Kermit version that's not in your. It's I'd, not in I'd, my oh, version. I'm gonna go to listen yeah. to that. And so I finally I heard from Paul Williams after the record came out, and I said, "So Paul, what'd you think?" And he said, "So what did you drop the bridge?" <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of a story that uh, that Glenn Fry tells about Tom Waits. 
when the Eagles redid All 55. Oh, yeah. Tom Waits song. Tom hated it. Ah. Hated it. I mean, Tom Waits is like this, and the Eagles are those packed, stacked, yeah. gorgeous harmonies in that song. Mm-hmm. And, he, and, he goes, and Glenn goes, he hated it. He liked it a lot better when he got the royalties. Yeah. <laughs> he loved the check. Yeah. Um, you and I ran into each other once a while ago, and you had done um, Bridge Over Troubled Water at our mutual friend Bobby Smith's funeral. Funeral, or? yeah, yeah. And you crushed it. And I was like, how how can you still hit the voice? And you said because I never really stopped singing. You like, yeah. You, you had a theory. I blame it on the divorce. That, well, that I didn't want to say it. <laughs> okay, you said it. I didn't want to say it, but that's exactly what you said. I knew you were, what you were thinking though. Yeah, you said, well, I've got to pay for those divorces, so I've never stopped. I've singing. never stopped singing. I had to stay on the road. I probably would have pulled way back, like so many artists from the seventies and eighties. But I just kept going because you know. You got to pay whatever you got to pay. The great David Foster, who I know you know. I mean, that's he's like he, he, in his act. He says, you know, this is the song that paid for this tour. <laughs> yeah, right. Which song? What did you do? I know you did a couple things, David. Oh God! Well, forever, you know, mm-hmm. forever in my heart. Oh, of and course, the, the live mm-hmm. version, forever, dude. Yeah, and I hit that high note. <laughs> right, right, and uh, um, that was one of the notes I was afraid of. Actually, when it's got every year, it would get a little bit higher. Stevie Nicks. Mm-hmm. That was a great collaboration. That song was massive. Yeah. Well, Stevie was at the peak of her power at that time. That was after rumors. And she was incredibly generous, you know, offering to sing on, you know, call me when you have a song that you think will work. And I just finished that song up. I, that's an interesting story for about tenacity or, or, or knowing your own have, hearing your own star or whatever. I'm, yeah. Words to me are a play thing. And that I had this melody. And I thought, this really feels like a Mike McDonald melody to me. So I'm going to sing. Whenever I call you friend. It's the bad Michael <laughs> McDonald. I, I was looking to see exactly who you were imitating there. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was not Stevie and it wasn't you. Right. It was Michael McDonald. Yeah. And, um, so I took the song, the melody idea to Michael and I said, what do you, what do you think? He said, oh, uh, I don't hear it, man. No, that's. <laughs> <laughs> and it, so he didn't like it. So I put it away and I thought, God, I, I thought it was good, but maybe it's not because I trust him so much. Yeah. And then a few, da- few days later, I'm writing with Melissa Manchester and I said, well, I got this. She said, what else do you have? Do you have anything we can work on? I said, well, I've got this one melody I, I really liked, but I'm not sure about it anymore. She said, well, l- let me hear it. So I sang it to her and she started blocking out the chords. And the next thing it was, whenever I call you friend, she loved it. Wow. But I said, you got to forgive me on this one. Stevie Nicks said she wants to sing something with me. I think it would be a good idea to take this to Stevie. Right. And uh, and she was totally cool with that because you know Stevie was the biggest female vocalist in the world. In the and guess what? She liked the check. <laughs> there you are again. That's a voice. You know it's her when she opens up her mouth. I love Stevie, and, and I will say I give her the cred for really breaking my solo career because I had just gone solo. It was okay. Things weren't working exactly the way I'd imagined, and then she did the duet with me, and it took off. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say 
Yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hey, Keurig coffee drinkers. Need a cold coffee with a bold flavor? Dunkin' Cold K-Cup pods were specially crafted for cold coffee. Brew over ice straight out of the Keurig coffee maker for smooth, delicious Dunkin' taste you know and love. Find your next Dunkin' Cold coffee in the roasted coffee aisle. I loved your book, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was, is an influence for me now as I'm writing mine. Really? Yeah, the, the level of humor and candor. Oh, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And I want to try and bring as much humor to my book as I can. I can. And that's, you know, when you think about all those ridiculous things that happened, a lot of them are pretty funny. Uh, yeah. The reason I wrote it was, man, if you haven't read it, I would highly recommend reading David Niven's book, The Moon's a Balloon. So obviously, David Niven was the great character actor and sort of bon vivant of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And he wrote what what is pretty much considered the ultimate memoir. And it was huge success, number one, sold forever. It was, was it, did he do Empty Horses? Yes, he did. That was number two. That was the second book, Bring on the Empty Horses, which is also good. But that bring on the empty horses is him writing about specific people. Like there's a uh, there's a Errol Flynn chapter, and there's a which is great. But the other you've got to read it. It's brilliant. And and what my takeaway was, he figured out a way to hit the bullseye that I tried to hit about being dishy and giving the stuff that people are like, whoa, no way. But in a way where it's completely um, the high road, nobody gets hurt, and if anybody ends up looking like an idiot, it's him. Oh. That's the secret sauce. You're right. Um, and, and you must have insane stories. Like, I, would re- I could read an entire book of you talking about the We Are the World recording. Honestly, the, that could end up being... My, my biggest issue with this book is that there's so much shit I don't remember. And it pisses me off, because I, I know there were great moments that I was so busy moving on to the next thing mm. that I wasn't as present within my life as I wish I'd been. But there was so much going on, you know, in my life that there were things like that, that people may find really interesting years later that for me was just a gig. I just was showing up to do my vocal on that song. That in and of itself, though, is interesting. Really? Yeah. I mean, because people will think... Story, a book called can, Stories I Don't Remember. Story, story, <laughs> stories I, I wish my mind were... But, but, but that's what's part of your life that, that makes it interesting is it was and continues to be so big that what would be a headline to someone else, you would think, for you is just a gig. Yeah. Do you have a title yet? Still all right. It's great. 
I mean, sitting there with the, with the canon of titles and the, you want to do something with the titles, yeah. that would be fun to be like, yeah. is it, you know, Celebrate Me Home? Is it something like- Celebrate yeah. Me Home was one of the contenders, yeah. It's a great one. Yeah. That's my, my mother wore that album out. And I kind of ignored that song. Originally, it's in 6-8, like sort of the rock and roll gospel waltz mm -hmm. time. And, but it was originally, I wrote it in 4-4. Four, four. Really? Yeah. And it was like, please celebrate me. Home. Two, three, three, four. And, and then when I showed it to Phil Ramon, when Phil produced my first album, I showed it to Phil and he said, that should be in 6-8. That's, that's a gospel tune. And it certainly was. And, and then I, all I had was that line, which I thought was like a filler line, like scrambled eggs was a filler line for McCartney's yesterday. Yep. So I thought, because no one had ever put it that way. No one ever said, celebrate me home. It's not a normal sentence. And he said, dude, that's how they'd say it on the street. So wow. I ran up to his office upstairs and wrote the whole lyric. How many filler lyrics survive in not, general? Not very many. Um, but what happens is uh, the spaces that they take, I like to, I like to consider them gospel. You know, for example, celebrate me home, please, two, three, four, celebrate. So if I replace that lyric, it would still be da ba dam bam bam. So I would have those syllables become the important elements of that melody. That's what syncopates the melody. When I'm mentoring mm -hmm. teenagers and stuff, young songwriters. Mm -hmm. I come up with things that I think, yeah, that's that's kind of a rule I've I've written by. I've never really said it out loud. Because, you know, as we get older, I think we become masters at whatever trade we're in. And for me, I hadn't really thought of myself that way, that I am now like a, a master at what I do. And it's ironic because that's when they put you out to pasture. I know the minute you're a master, they're not interested. <laughs> then you, then, then you got to move on because, you know, you're done. It's, but it's really, and that's, by the way, you could just do a, an entire chapter on, on that in the book. Just do a, a segue of like deep dive songwriting stuff. I would love that. People find that stuff interesting. Some people find it interesting. Listen, I wrote a, uh, an, in the second book I did, an essay about sending my kid to college. And I was like, it's not really the tone of the book. It's, it's not, I, first of all, I don't think anybody, I had to write it just, I wrote it as a, cathartic exercise for myself and I was like who cares it became the thing that launched the second book and people share it now every year really yeah it's it's like parents and they they like I just the other day I said oh god I read your rest of it sending my kid to college I just sent my kid off and you, you just don't know yeah you know, you know you, what I mean you gave me an idea to put in the book is when my first son was out of high school Crosby and he was hanging out with the wrong kind of people, you know. The Montecito rats. The Montecito people. <laughs> you weren't the first. You were the first Montecito rat. Yeah, I was. I surely was. I'm the biggest <laughs> rat of all. You set the tone for the rest of us. Yes. Anyway, uh, he. So we were building a home in Hawaii. So to get him away from the drug culture, mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. sent him to Hawaii. Yeah. Of all places, he went kicking and screaming, and it was the first of my children to really leave the nest. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a song uh, with um, Mark Mancina called Always in Always. And it was basically a really sad goodbye song. Little did I know that he'd be back in six months. But when he went, he was like kicking and screaming and don't make me leave. And 
my life is here in Santa Barbara. And then he, the day he landed in Hawaii, he called me and said, what was I crying about? <laughs> you just sent me to Hawaii? Yeah, right. <laughs> like, oh, welcome home. That's the kind of stuff that you, you, just, yeah. you just never know. I mean, I know I would love to hear the Ten Commandments of Songwriting by Kenny Loggins. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I would definitely love that. I'll, I'll work on it. Who do you think, give me your top five songwriters from the 60s to today? Well, Jimmy Webb would be one of the top. Wow. Yeah, because... He just wrote some such great songs. Yeah, he did. We could just spend half an hour breaking down his tunes. And I, I know people would go, Jimmy Webb, really? Yeah, Jimmy Webb. Mm-hmm. And of course, Leonard McCartney and Dylan and the, the, the go-tos. I think Tom Petty. Yes, me too. Great rock writer. Mm, I agree. Hard to really delineate. But uh, my era is slightly ahead of yours, of course. Mm-hmm. And it was male-dominated, so there weren't a lot of female songwriters, but Carol King, I was going to say Carol King. Carol King is up there as one of the top. Yeah. Uh, I took my daughter, Hannah, who at the time was 16, to see Beautiful. Oh, I never Broadway. saw it. I, I wanted it's to. really good. And the girl that plays Carol King is so good that people, by the end of the play, they believe she is Carol King. Wow. And they stand up and applaud for her as if she was. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Um, but... Uh, um, my daughter was very shy about per- performing, Hana, her name is, as in Hana Maui. And so was Carol when she was young. So I called Carol up the next day and said, would you text my daughter and just give her some words of encouragement? Oh, my God. <laughs> that's, the, that's the advantage that we have being in the business, that Jeez. we know these people. So the next day, my daughter runs up to me and says, Dad. I, I just got a text from Carol King. <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah. That's, that, now that is some proper fathering. She's, <laughs> that's fathering. Yeah, that is proper yeah. fathering. Yeah, I think for, for me, it's, you know, it's, it's uh, Paul Simon, Dylan, I agree, I agree Tom Petty, um, Jackson Brown. Jackson, great writer. You know how this is great? Like, I mean, it's, it's, form, it's got a formula, but in, he came in and we, I talked, it was John Fogarty. I mean, oh, yeah. John wrote some, I mean. Yeah. There was a movie, was it Bad Moon Rising, that was, they used his song as the theme song? Well, first of all, I don't think any character in a movie can go to Vietnam without one of John's songs playing. You and can, now you're li- talking about Jim Morrison. Yes. Well, that was the I ultimate. Mean, that's I mean, the ultimate. You're standing next to that, that, the Jim Morrison is like. That's the ultimate. That v- was Vietnam. Yeah. Sometimes in concert, I'll just break into "Love Me Two Time, Baby." Love me twice today. Die. Love yeah. me too. Yeah, that was not a, necessarily a great songwriter, but a great personality, like John Wayne was to movies. That's and he's Morrison was to me when he sang like John Wayne. When you think about it, <laughs> I mean, he sang music the way John Wayne acted. If you really think about it, it's all always, well. I'm gonna tell you, <laughs> love me two well, times, yeah. baby. See, we've 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 cracked a lot of the codes <laughs> today, but I knew we would. I knew you and I would have a great talk. Um, thank you for coming in. This is so much fun for me. I, I've been looking forward to it forever because I'm a huge fan, and I've no, I know you as a as a as a neighbor over the years, and it's always great to see you. And thank uh, you. I, I appreciate that. Wow, I got to talk to Kenny for. Another five hours and gone even deeper into my nerddom on uh, 70s, 80s, Yacht Rocky pop. Oh, so uh, thanks for listening, everybody. What a fun, what a fun one. I hope you had as much fun as I did. Um, and now let's, let's have a little gander at the lowdown line. Hello, you've reached literally in our lowdown line. 
where you can get the lowdown on all things about me, Rob Lowe. 323-570-4551. So have at it. Here's the beep. Hi, Rob. This is Virginia, personal chef here in Charlottesville, Virginia. Yep, I'm Virginia in Virginia. And I was wondering, I've kind of been dying to know, the character that you played on Californication, I'm wondering how much of that is ad-libbed and how much is scripted. And even if there was a script, like, what did this script include? Because there's no way that someone can script out the character that you wrote in there. And also, coincidentally, I was watching um, View from the Top or something like that from with Gwyneth Paltrow in it, and you were you had like a cameo on there as the pilot. And I was wondering, how do you get a spot like that? Did you just happen to be in the stage next door and they were filming and they said, hey, do you want to be a spot in the movie? Or like, how does that work? So I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Thank you for checking in. Um, okay, so Eddie Nero in Californication. It might be my favorite character I've ever played. It might be. I mean, it's certainly up there with Chris Traeger on Parks and Recreation and Sam Seaborn on The West Wing. Um, so, uh, a lot of it was written. I have to say they did a really good job with the dialogue, but I definitely improvised a bunch of stuff, mostly the physical stuff, which can, cannot be even described on a family podcast. Um, view from the top with Gwyneth Paltrow. I did because Gwyneth is, um, one of my oldest friends. I've known her since she was 16 and Mike Myers and I are old, 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 old friends. And he was in it too. So it was really just we're all doing a movie. Do you want to come in and do something? And and we had fun. And um, one of the most uncomfortable things I've ever had to do was make out with GP because it's like making out with my sister. <laughs> Thanks for the question. I will see you next week. Don't forget to download the entire season, uh, by the way, um, of Literally with me, Rob Lowe. You've been listening to Literally with Rob Lowe, produced and engineered by me, Rob Schulte. Our coordinating producer is Lisa Berm. The podcast is executive produced by Rob Lowe for Low Profile, Jeff Ross, Adam Sachs, and Joanna Solitaroff at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson at Stitcher. Our talent bookers are Gina Batista, Paula Davis, and Britt Kahn, and music is by Devin Tory Bryant. Make sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and we'll see you next week on Literally with Rob Lowe. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Stitcher. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated.